Pleasure to be here today with uh, Richie, uh, also known as Eric Taub within the Ibogain community, a name he used for 26 years uh, as a f- uh, for his own personal reasons. Uh, and I'm pleased that uh, Richie could be with us to discuss uh, the life, his life and times within the Ibogain world. So, uh, good afternoon or good morning to you, Richie. How are you doing? Hi, fine, thanks, Lee. Great. Uh, so I'm, I'm really uh, excited, actually, that we could have this conversation because uh, you're someone who's uh, has a long history and a lot, uh, a lot to offer people in terms of understanding the evolution of the Ibogaine world. And so uh, maybe where we can start is perhaps you can tell us how you first heard about Ibogaine. I understand it was from Al Markovich. Is that correct? Yeah, yes. Al Markowitz was um, a friend of mine um, who I met on the streets of New York while I sold um, my little crafted uh, uh, rings, and he was selling his wife's earrings. And we met um, in Manhattan, and over a period of several years, we would share uh, different modalities, um, interesting um ideas uh he was uh living in new york and i was mostly in florida living and he called me one day um thanksgiving week of 1989 and he asked me if i had ever heard about ibogaine he had a personal interest in it because he was really struggling with alcohol he was in his 50s um in poor health as a result and um and I, of course, had never heard about it, uh, but it sounded really intriguing when he told me that he, he had a couple of naturopathic physician friends of his who heard that there was a physician who witnessed some sessions uh, in Amsterdam in hotel rooms, and people were literally being placed into a, a pre-addictive state from a severe addiction to opioids um, practically overnight. So I I walked to the Herbarian Library at the University of Florida where I came across a one-page article about a small corporation located on Staten Island um, created by Howard Glatzoff. And um, I gave Howard a call and received a hard copy, a packet of information and in it was a series of testimonials uh, from people that had experienced Ibogaine uh, with the help of, of Howard. Okay, so um, if I just uh, can stop you there and just clarify one or two things. So uh, uh, Al 
I had heard about uh, the treatments that that Howard was conducting in Holland, uh, well, possibly with uh, Bastians. Is that correct? The the uh, uh, doctor in Holland. And, That's correct. And you you went to the library and f- f- discovered that Howard had gone to Belgium and obtained a semi-synthetic uh, source of ibogaine, uh, which he patented in 1985. Am I correct to say that? Uh, as far as I know, that's correct. Right, and apparently before you uh, got this call from Al Markovic, you had a uh, an unusual experience uh, when you were in a sitting pose. Do you want to just say something about that? Um, okay. Uh, well, it was a very auspicious week. Um, I had met a, a very unique and unusual individual, uh, for one thing, and uh, the other interesting thing that happened was I was sitting in in a, a sitting up meditation, and literally within a few seconds, um, there were these two beings that were basically on both sides of me, and they were looking past me towards each other, just so ecstatic and laughing and having a wonderful time and at the time for myself i was very sad i had just separated from my my daughter's mom and i was um had just turned 40 and i was making these rings which i enjoyed making but it wasn't an end in itself it wasn't a passion i had already always surrounded myself with friends who really loved what they did, irrespective of whether they were making money at it or not. They just had to do what they were doing, and I was still doing this kind of linear, um, you know, means to an end, simple way of helping bring up a family. Um, but I wasn't in love with it. It wasn't right livelihood, if you will. And here I had this very strange experience. And then a day or two later, received a call from Al. And I felt that there was a connection, possibly, between the two experiences. Yeah, it certainly sounds quite synchronistic. Um, So Howard apparently had had his first experience in 1962. And here we are 27 years later, and Howard's doing one-dose, single-dose treatments in Holland. Um, And that's the the time when you interacted with him. And at this stage, he had uh, obtained his his patent. So uh, do you want to tell us then, um, okay, so... You got in touch with Howard at that point, and Dana was Dana was involved as well. Is that correct? Well, Dana was an old friend of Howard's. Uh, he Dana was doing his own thing, but he was always, at the time, I'm sure, very sympathetic to to uh, to the work that uh, Howard began to do in the mid '80s. Um, Dana, I think, became more active in the ibogaine world later on some many years later because he was doing other things at the time the the pro medical marijuana movement um i think was taking a lot of his time you know his his activities worldwide okay so so actually uh, you decided um 
sometime later, uh, I, I was six months apparently after you first got in touch with Ibogaine to, to head down to Mexico where you had been in 1982 uh, on a seclusion in Monterey and you had met some, you had made friends with a family there, a wealthy family. So do you just mm -hmm. want to tell us about what happened then in 1990? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, well, just to also mention that the conclusion of the phone conversation I had with Al Markowitz, he said that he thought that there was a couple of doctors that were on their way to Washington to see if they can fast track Ibogaine, you know, to push it through the FDA so that it could be made available in the United States, which, of course, never happened to this day. Ibogaine is still a controlled substance. Um, so when I heard about um, Ibogaine, I felt... Uh, this was my calling. This I, I just couldn't believe that uh, something was available um, that was a plant medicine that was being uh, that was costing people up towards fifteen to eighteen thousand dollars a treatment. Why couldn't I I go to Cameroon and? And the pygmies would look through me and around me and decide if that I was going to be the harborer of Ibogaine to the world. And I can pick up, you know, 40,000 doses for three cents each, go to Needle Park in Europe, um, dose out 20,000 people. One quarter of them would show up for their free needles the following week at the park. I would call CNN and the whole world would know about it, and that would be that would be the end of my messianic complex. Okay, so. oh, sure, but before we, we get to your um, journeys over to uh, Cameroon, do you just want to mention for a moment, in 1996, months after your contact with uh, with Howard, about your trip to, to Mexico? What, what was that? What happened yeah, there? Yeah, but that, I was just mentioning this fantasy that I had, this scenario, because... That was my first impression uh, before I went to Mexico. So before I went to uh, before I went to Africa, I went to Mexico initially because I wanted to know if it was possible to bring Ibogaine back to Mexico and introduce it to Mexico. And this was back in 1990. Right. Um, and so I went. I took a drive to uh, Saltillo, well, which is south of the uh, Laredo border in, in Texas. And I met up with uh, this family, uh, this dynasty of, of a family, uh, very lovely people. And they introduced me to a couple of doctors who I shared the information with. And they were immediately uh, resistant to uh, to the process of introducing it to Mexico because they were afraid if this was as efficacious as I was saying, then they would feel that it would threaten the drug lords who utilize their roads to bring uh, drugs up to the Texas and other borders. And I was very surprised and disappointed that they weren't interested. They didn't want to push any any waves, make any waves with the cartels. Nice. Um, so I drove back to Florida and I um, carried on with my life thinking about the possibility 
of my trip to Africa, which took me three and a half years to make. Right. That's correct. And so in March of 1993, uh, that's when you decided to go. And uh, before you left, uh, you were t got together with some naturopathic doctors in Manhattan. And do you mm -hmm. want to tell us about what happened that evening? Okay. Um, well, there was about eight or nine of these uh, naturopaths that were situated at a friend's in Manhattan, and there were a couple of more uh, of uh, naturopaths on the phone from different parts of the country, and we were all schmoozing, and they were all speculating as to whether I actually needed to go to Cameroon or whether I can find some seeds and grow it here. Um, they were mentioning that there was um, a plant located in somebody's backyard in Jamaica. Why didn't I scoot over there and see if I can grab a few seeds? And they were just like, just really heady, intellectual characters. It was like, you know, 11 o'clock at night. I already had my flight for five o'clock the next afternoon. Um, and then, you know, things were heating up and things are getting more and more confounding until one of the naturopaths took me aside, took me around the corner in the apartment. He said, look, you know, why don't you just relax and make the trip, you know, just see what happens. And um, just his attitude calmed me down and gave me an immediate, more relaxed perspective. And, you know, the idea of just do your best. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Right. So then the next day you had a Cameroon and your uh, your first impressions were of uh, the fact that 6% of men were, were angry, hungry and in need of money. So uh, how did that uh, sit with you when you arrived? Um, well, I was very focused. Um, I was very intent on, on finding Iboga. Um, I was... You know, I was I was on a mission, right. and I didn't know where to go, and I didn't know who to speak with. Um, I felt well, okay. Um, I don't speak French, and so I'll go to the nearest university and go to the chemistry department and see if they know anything about ibogaine. Right. Um, so when I got to the university, I noticed there were thousands of kids walking around. But they weren't um, holding any books. And uh, I spoke with a couple of professors asking them where the uh, organic chemistry department was located. And they didn't seem to be teaching at the time. There were broken window panes of glass on the ground. It seemed to be as chaotic as the government of Cameroon at the time was chaotic. Um, so I, I ended up finding the uh, chemistry department's door, and I knocked on the door, and apparently there was a couple of guys that were playing cards. And uh, one of them answered the door, and I said, do you know anything about Ibogaine? And he said, no, but if you come back tomorrow, there'll be somebody here that may be able to help you. So I went back to my... my uh, it was, I think it was like an 
not an Airbnb. It was like a hotel, but it was out of town. I had to take a taxi, maybe 20 minutes out of town into a, a bit of a countryside. Um, and I came back the next day and I knocked on the door and this six foot five, 300 pound guy answered. And I asked him, do you know anything about Ibogaine? He, he said, how did you find me? I said, well, um, I just didn't know where else to go. Um, I'm looking to procure Iboga or Ibogaine. And he said, where are you from? I said, the Bronx. And he said, um, basically, after a short conversation, he said, God will strike me down if I don't work with you. How did you find me? I'm the only uh, um, chemist on the continent of Africa that spent the last year and a half perfecting the process of extracting right. I began from the West African shrub. And he literally carried me to an old wooden chest and he took out a vial of white powder that said 13 grams of Ibogaine HCL on the label. And he said, um, this is Ibogaine. This is what I extracted. And I, I said, well, can I have it? I want to go back and begin to do treatments with people. He said, I'll sell it to you. And I said, well, for how much? He said, $1,000 a gram. And I said, well, I only have $4,000 to give you in my pocket. And he said, well, that's okay. You'll come back right. and you'll pay me the remaining $9,000. So I said, okay, great. Right. Um, well, I guess for him, he hadn't been paid for four months. That's correct, isn't it? So, right. So it was quite right. fortuitous. It turned out that I heard that the professors hadn't been paid, paid for months and um and uh, and yeah that was the situation right um so uh before i went um i remember walking with my daughter to the the shoe guy in the mall and i asked them to route out uh, a couple of of my the heels to my shoe just in case i had some money or i needed to protect something to place into the shoe um, and it turned out that that's where I placed the, the 13 grams of Ibogaine. Right. So actually, uh, this, there was an interesting point here. On your way over, that's when you came up with this name, which you've, been, you've used for so many years in the community of Eric Taub. And how, how did that come about on the plane? Um, well, well, when I came, there was a few other things that transpired while I was there with the chemist during the 10 days that I was there. Um, for example, one thing that was really striking for me was occasionally I'd walk downtown where there were thousands and thousands of people um, uh, just walking around. There was clusters of men that apparently were out of work. There was such a large percentage of unemployment and there was a lot of anger. There was a lot of fear because, you know, people needed to put food on their on their tables for their kids and themselves. And uh, and I remember walking down the street. It probably was 96 degrees at the time, and I got a rush up the spine because I had 
a few seeds in my hand, literally holding them in my hand that I received from the chemist, along with, of course, the, the Ibogaine, which was in the heel of my shoe. But I got this, this really clear understanding, taking a walk, literally walking in the middle of the street, not on the sidewalk, because wherever I walked in Yoande, Cameroon, the capital of Cameroon, um, there was invariably a few guys that were following me. And so I needed to feel a little bit more uh, protective. Um, so I walked, you know, closer to the street where the cars were happening instead of the quiet sidewalk. Um, but I felt a rush up the spine in 96 degree weather with a sense of that it was actually an effect. The seeds themselves were more important in terms of introducing the possibility of growing iboga in the West than the, the ibogaine was in the heel of my shoe. Um, so then I, when I was on my way back to, uh, to the United States, um, initially my flight was, was going to go through, through Europe, I think maybe through Frankfurt or I'm not sure if it was Amsterdam, you know, on my way back to New York. Um, and, um, I, I realized what I was going to do and that I was actually on my way to begin the next step of this project. Um, and so I, um, I thought of a name and uh, the last name Taub was refreshing because, you know, given that my last name is Ogolnik in my real name, I had to spell it my entire and pronounce it to people my entire life. I thought it would be very refreshing to have a nice, simple, short name that people would be able to respond to without me having to to spell it. So I used two people that I knew from uh, from when I was a child, two friends that had different names, and I combined uh, both names and I used the name Eric Taub. Of course, what ended up happening was I had to spell Taub anyway, because people pronounced it Tub and Tube, <laughs> um, but at least I didn't have right. to spell out a long name. I spelled out a short name. Right. So then, then when I was on the plane, I must have filled out the uh, declaration uh, form literally three or four times, um, wondering if I should declare the Ibogaine in Europe um, because it wasn't illegal there. Um, so I would fill it out and then I would rip it up and I would ask for another one <laughs> and fill it out and rip it up. And I was pretty nervous, you know, I never right. smuggled anything before. Um, and, uh, and then ended up just letting it go and saying, it's just gonna, it's in my, it's in the sole of my, of my shoe. It's gonna stay there. Right. So actually there's something interesting happened then just as you got back, um, in relation to Claudia Naranjo's yeah, book. So a lot to... of interesting things happened. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Can you just tell um, us a little about that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I got back on um, one of my daughter's birthday, uh, March the 8th. 
1993. And uh, there was just a few people that knew that I was coming back and with what I was coming back uh, with. And, um, and the day that I came back was the day that a 66-year-old client who had a facial tick dropped uh, a chapter from the out-of-print book uh, called The Healing Journey, uh, written by Claudio Naranjo, a Chilean therapist, in her lap. Um, she, my friend, n never spoke with anyone to let them know that there was a friend coming back with, uh, with Ibogaine. And yet this chapter, um, which was dropped in her lap, uh, he, he, the, the client thought that it may be helpful to eliminate his facial tick that he had his entire life. Um, the name of the chapter was Ibogaine Fantasy and Reality, and it documented about 40 low-dose, directive, interactive therapy sessions um, with, with clients of Claudio's under the influence of, of Iboga, or Ibogaine. Um, and that chapter helped us initially explore and create the protocols to work with people, not for addiction interruption, but for uh, therapy as well as the psychospiritual. So over a period of a few years thereafter, there were several of us that took turns um, taking different dose ranges so that we can get clear on how to work with people uh, besides uh, the addiction interruption treatments that we knew how to work with basically from Howard's um, mostly expired patents where he, he explained, he described the dose range to use for addiction interruption. Um, but the therapeutic and the spiritual sessions were quite different when it came to um, the dose ranges that were used for, for those intentions. Okay, so just to clarify, uh, Claudio Naranjo was uh, using Ibogaine as part of his uh, practice in Chile, is that not correct, before he moved to the that, Bay Area? That's right. He, he, that's right. He, so he moved to the Bay Area in the mid-90s, is that correct? Well, I don't know exactly when he moved, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was sooner. And if it wasn't sooner, he definitely, well, I think he had connections uh, in the Bay Area uh, as early as the 70s. Right. So just on that note. Uh, because the book, uh, the, the book ahead. was actually published in, I believe it was the late 60s or early 70s. Okay, so just on that, uh, did you? It, it, was there a, an underground movement active? Do you think in those decades from uh, the seventies, eighties, nineties in in the Bay Area, or what's? What I, do you I'm sure. That, I'm sure there was. I was in touch with them because um, my. I'm surmising. I don't know this from any feedback that I'm getting from anyone else, right. but I wouldn't be surprised if it was Claudio who introduced. Um, the directive, uh, you know, processes, the protocols to work with Ibogaine, not for addiction interruption, 
but therapeutically, spiritually, um, and created, helped create the underground in the Bay Area. It was this very small pocket of perhaps 30 to 50 people um, that had access to Iboga um, until the mid-90s when they got in touch with me and explained that they had had access, but now they lost their connection. And, um, and they were asking me if I would help them uh, continue uh, their connection, which I did for a couple to a few years until they no longer maintained contact. They probably got another connection, perhaps. Okay, so uh, taking us back then to when you returned from uh, from from when you returned from Africa, uh, thirteen days later, uh, someone you knew uh, died right. from an overdose. Is that correct? Well, what happened was um, River Phoenix died of an overdose in front of a club in L.A. Um, shortly after I came back from uh, from Cameroon, and I, I think it was I think there was a few things that transpired before that time. Um, a friend of mine, <clears throat> a really good writer. Uh, wrote an article in Magical Blend magazine uh, um, about Ibogaine and about, um, you know, me introducing Ibogaine to the West or helping to introduce it to the West. And um, and that reached about 65,000 people. It was a New Age magazine located in Northern California. And I immediately began to receive postcards and letters from people interested in in hearing more about it and possibly coming to me for session. And probably 90% of the people at the time during those first few years were coming for spiritual intentions. It was a New Age magazine, and that was their interest uh, upon reading the article. And so people were coming literally from all over the world, mostly, of course, from the United States and Canada, but they were coming to visit me in Florida from from Australia, from England, from many different parts of the world. And then sometime during that period, I, I think it could have been a year or two after I came back in 1993, and we can check Google to see when River Phoenix passed um, in front of that club 13 days after he passed, his dearest friend, uh, who was a heroin addict and scared at the time, uh, came to me um, for treatment. And we worked with him, and, uh, and he's been clean ever since. And that was quite a turning point for me because he had just received a bit of an inheritance and he was able to give me the money that allowed me to start moving into working with with ibogaine full-time and i was able to let go of making my jewelry which i did for 21 years
Did you start immediately with treatments, or was there a time yes. gap? It, make, it was, yeah, it was, a, it was immediate. Well, the first three months when I came back from from Cameroon the first time, because I, I went a half a dozen times over a two to three year period, um, I spent three months on the phone. Right. Uh, basically, my phone bills were at the time with AT and T about a thousand dollars a month, and I was on the phone all day. I was just so, so, you know, exuberant and so passionate about sharing it with not only friends of mine, but friends of friends and, and anyone I can get my, my voice, you know, to, to talk to. Um, uh, sometimes I would, for example, I made a call once to, to someone and I was always so excited about talking with them about this. Um, one guy, for example, um, and I noticed that people were also very excited uh, in reply to my exuberance. Uh, but like, for example, one guy, I was so excited that I sent him an overnight packet of information. This was before I had a computer. And uh, a few days later, I followed it up with another phone call and I asked him, did you open up the packet? He said, what packet? I said, you know, the packet about I began. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. So what I began to learn was that people were kind of catching my excitement, but after a minute, they would just move on with their lives. So mm-hmm. I began to kind of tone down my, re- my re- reaction, and I began to, you know, not waste money on sending an overnight packet when... I realized that people weren't really weren't quite as interested as I was. Right. But the the article um, that was published by my friend Arjuna the Silver um, really got things rolling. Very shortly after I came back, we we did one friend because he was um, wanted to address his issue with marijuana. He was. He felt he was just smoking too much pot, mm-hmm. and 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 then uh, a few of us began to share. We began to take turns doing doing ibogaine together uh, in a directive therapeutic uh, uh, situation where one of us would be sitting in a lounge chair, and there would be a couple of therapists that would be surrounding. Uh, them and helping them guide to experience, um, you know, pictorial gestalts and an unleashing of repressed memories and to focus on a particular intention having to do with relationships with, you know, their mother, their father, and so on. Okay, so... Um, So that that happened right away, Lee. We we started doing sessions um, immediately. So... That's where you began, if you like, uh, experimenting with dose levels. So your initial doses at that time were what exactly? Uh, f- we started with five mm-hmm. milligrams of ibogaine HCL because it's the only product that we had available. Right. Like we didn't have any root bark or <coughs> or total alkaloid um, or available. So we were working with the approximately you know, 90, 95 percent. Ibogaine hydrochloride, the only alkaloid um, that we had available. Um, And we started at five milligrams per kilogram of body weight. 
Right. And then, um, okay, actually, so you then moved on to what was like 6.5 and worked your way up to yeah. 10. Is that how yeah, it was? Yeah, we worked ourselves. That's correct. Yeah, you, you got the notes right. <laughs> so so when did you decide that you could no longer um, do uh, corrective or into, 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 uh, uh, sort of uh, uh-huh, directive right. therapy? Right. Yeah, well, we, we discovered at about depending upon the person. Uh, and this was over a period of a couple of years. I, I actually personally experienced, I began four times over a five-year period. So this was a, a gradual process. And during that time, people were already coming to receive sessions from different parts of the world. Um, so at about, for myself, at 10 milligrams per kilogram, I realized that there was a, about a 45-minute period, at least, where my where, where there wasn't any linear capacity, so there was no um, ability to do any direct directive work, um, and so that and it was a sense of being introduced to the essence energy of the plant at that point. Um, and that sort of kicked the experience into what we defined as as psychospiritual and not psychotherapeutic. Okay, so I just wanted to, to to clarify then: was this does this occur at six after six point five, or was it after ten? Was there or somewhere in between? Well, it it so depends on the individual because I'll give you the range. Yes. I've had you know in working with you know a thousand people. There was one person who was in a dream state condition at two and a half milligrams per kilogram. And then on the other side of the spectrum, um, I did a session with the person experiencing 20 milligrams per kilogram. And three and a half hours later, he was sitting out on the veranda with me having a, a linear conversation. So it's just, it's so varied to each individual but in general what did you find to be the cutoff point or what were you comfortable with yourself working with people at at, at the, the five milligrams per kilogram the six and a half was still in the realm of of being able to do directive interactive work mm-hmm. uh, people were you know linear enough to be able to focus on uh uh, intending to explore a particular subject matter, mm-hmm. whether it was a relationship with father or mother. Um, and after that, things began to break down. And there was a, 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 a deconstruction of the ego to the point where that not only wasn't um, we weren't able to do directive ther- therapy, but it wasn't appropriate. There was something else going on. Okay. The the synergistic um, uh, experience, the 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 relationship between the essence energy of the plant and the individual took over. 
Okay, so just uh, I just I just want to recap on something here. It, it, it coincidentally it happened that at the time you started, Howard Lotsoff uh, had actually just uh, stopped giving treatments and had done between thirty right. and fifty treatments between nineteen eighty nine and nineteen eighty three. So uh, you actually came on the scene about six months after Howard stopped because he had had a, a, a you know a, a, an incident in Holland, believed right. uh, apparently due to someone taking a surreptitious dose of heroin uh, during the course of the treatment. And uh, for those who aren't, who don't know, um, Ibogaine potentiates opioids, and so a small dose of heroin will can lead to an overdose very quickly. Um, so it was... It was interesting that you came in just as Howard was stepping back and there was nobody else at that time doing treatments apart from perhaps, was there a maybe Carl in Sweden? Um, yes. Mm-hmm. And he was using the, the in- Indra extract? Yeah. Right, the Indra extract that he created um, a ton of uh, back in the... I believe it was the mid '80s. Yes, which which uh, Sarah Glad actually went on to use quite a bit, I believe, and I think so. Yeah, yeah. So, so really, you were probably the only person, certainly in the states, um, that was. Except for that small group of people in the uh, the Bay the Bay Area. Right, right. Who contacted you apparently in the '90s, uh, seeking. Um, to right. supply, but as they had run out from their contact, wherever that was. Mm-hmm. Um, so, moving on, then we, we're sort of in the in late '93 and into '94. Then in '95, '96, uh, you received an unusual packet. Do you want to tell us about that? Uh sure, sure. Um, so uh, previous to that, um, I would um, meet the chemist um, usually at the bank and invariably he was with yet another girlfriend um, and so I, I suppose the the funds that I was sending uh, that I was sharing with him was uh, creating a lifestyle for him that um, was kind of typical of, of uh, a person a man you know, with with more money in Africa, he because I knew he had a wife and he had kids and yet he had girlfriends as well. Um, and I would meet him and often one of his girlfriends at the bank and uh, we would exchange uh, whatever we needed to exchange. Um, at the time, during those first few years, I was actually doing sessions and and doing them uh, financially arranging the, uh, the the exchange with a person that came for session according to um, specifically body weight so at first I was doing sessions for three dollars and 21 cents a milligram so if a woman came for you know a therapeutic session and she weighed um, you know, 94 pounds, um, she received the session for much less. So basically what I was doing initially was tripling my money so I can keep a roof over my head, repl- uh, you know, uh, uh, supply myself with more inventory and, and live. 
Um, and then after a year or two, for some reason, I brought it down to $2.14, I think, because I had caught up financially and I was fine for a while, but I was still receiving it from the same chemist. Sometimes I would have like a whole bunch of cash in my underwear and I would, you know, be flying to Cameroon. I remember there was one trip when I literally was in Africa for a day and a half, <clears throat> but usually I'd spend a couple of weeks. Um, and then one day I received this little crunched up envelope with no re return address. Um, and I opened it up and there was this corner of a piece of paper that was ripped off, basically, you know, a piece of scrap paper with the phone number 01144, on and on and on, obviously a, a UK phone number. So I, so I gave them a call and it was, it was, the, it was representatives that, that were representing a small family operation, a laboratory located in a, a small village in Italy um, who were extracting Ibogaine from Tabernathi Iboga. And I called, I didn't call them, I wasn't allowed to call them, but I asked, you know, what's going on? What, what is this? Um, why do I have your number? And they said, well, it's because I think they, there might have been the word I began on in the on the scrap paper. I don't remember, um, and I didn't know who it was from. And it turned out that this small operation with representatives located in England were selling grams of ibogaine hydrochloride for a hundred dollars, basically hundred and twenty, ninety six, depending upon the euro exchange. And so this was like one-tenth the amount that, that I was receiving it for, for the first few years. And to this day, because I asked Dana, I asked how, Howard, Howard, I asked everyone thought to ask, who sent me that, that crunched up letter that, that looked like it was from a 10-year-old? And I never found out. Um, I'm still wondering, I'm still, you sort of names are flashing as to who it could have been, um, but yes, I never found out. It's strange how in life sometimes these things happen and we never really know who or why, mm -hmm. but perhaps there was a good, there was someone out there was doing a good deed and just didn't want right. to be known. So was it around this time that Carl got involved? Uh, it was before that. Um, I introduced Carl to... Um, the idea of um, um, uh, making, uh, perhaps making uh, supply available um, because he lived in Europe and because it was illegal in the United States, I, I wish that he um, became involved with the supply side. Um, and he actually also found out about the the laboratory in Italy as well. Um, synchronistically, around about the same time that I received the envelope, although I found out very soon that it wasn't from him, the envelope 
came, you know. Um, so, so he began to establish, uh, but before he, before that, he um, asked, uh, I don't know if he would want his name to be mentioned, uh, but maybe so. Uh, Chris, um, a chemist, a young, a young, young man back then, um, was a chemist and was receiving some kind of small stipend and he wanted to do some service to the world and he was in love with the idea of, uh, of open sourcing back then in the, the mid-90s. Um, uh, the way in which to extract um, ibogaine from uh, the root bark, and so Carl went down to Africa and uh, and created a connection where uh, root bark could be shipped up to at the time France. It wasn't illegal in France, and Chris Jenks. I, okay, I used his last name. Um, what he was doing and what he's always done is absolutely legal and above board. Um, but he was a, a wonderful young guy, and he's a wonderful young guy now, in my estimation, in his mid-40s probably. Um, uh, spent uh, a few months in Carl's Kitchen and, uh, and published uh, an article or two about how to extract um, and so he was he was playing with it, and and one day I received a check for two thousand dollars from Chris, made out to Eric Taub, and he said, "Buy yourself a computer." And that was, I mean, Chris is one of the most endearing characters I've ever met in my life, and everyone says that about him. Um, and of course, I thanked him for the check, and then let him know that my name wasn't really Eric Taub. Um, and uh, he helped me buy my first computer in probably 1996-ish, seven, something like that. Um, so he, he did some work, and but then the overlap on that was that we found the connection in Italy, and given that Carl's, uh, Carl had connections and had friends in Italy, he established uh, over a period of years, a good relationship with the laboratory in this in this small town in Italy. Right. So did Carl uh, get involved at the same time as you returning from Cameroon, or was it sometime later? Very, very shortly. I think okay. he was one of the very first people. We were always friends. Uh, we met uh, when he was going to the university. Uh, at, in Gainesville, in Florida, before he went off to California to learn some other modalities, uh, deep massage uh, work, and so on. So we were friends. Right. So, uh, and, and given that he was moving back to Europe, I was excited about the possibility of him being involved. Right. So uh, apparently then, uh, or you know, many of the people you treated wanted to become providers, but um, you had uh, a rule about that? Yeah, I, I had a, a, a fast rule um, that said that if a person that was coming 
even if a person, well, I never actually met a person who wasn't coming for addiction that wanted to do sessions and treatments with people, but um, people would come um, and they would uh, do an addiction interruption treatment and sometimes, not always, but sometimes they would have to do another one if they relapsed, even if it was on another substance, whether they moved from opioids to alcohol um, or from opioids to a very small amount. Some people had to do two as much as three sessions over a, a few year period. But a lot of people settled in Gainesville uh, where I lived, particularly women settled in Gainesville only because um, what I learned over a period of many years was that addiction has a lot to do with abandonment from the same-sex parent, um, often, more often than the opposite sex parent. And there were a lot of women um, who came and settled after their Ibogaine session, and a, a friend of mine, Lissa, took them under her wing uh, as a therapist, um, and there was a lot of healing that happened with these people. But anyway, I diverse. Um, back to yes. Yeah, so, the, the, so actually, I, I was interested in the way in which your own um, treatments had, if you like, uh, spawned uh, a, a provider network. Uh huh. Yeah. So what happened was, um, um, uh, people would come, and one person called and said, "Look." Um, I'm, I'm here in Hoboken, New Jersey, and I'm on the street, and I'm shooting up with puddle water. If I don't come to see you tomorrow for treatment, I'm gonna I'm gonna die. So you know, people came out of cardboard boxes with 26 sleeping bags, living under a bridge in Vermont during the winter, where they would share their their cardboard box with other people that didn't have a cardboard box and 26 sleeping bags um, and they would show up and and over a period of weeks or months after healing their livers and abscesses they would uh, do ibogaine and then immediately want to start working with it and i always said look there's there's a lot of stuff that you may want to do other than working with ibogaine not to mention getting your teeth fixed um, getting a place to live, so on and so forth. But if you come back a year later and you knock on the door and you still want to work with it, by all means, without question, there'll be a way for you to to share it with other people. Mm-hmm. So that happened, and there were a couple of doctors, a psychiatrist and an MD, a couple of nurses, paraclinicians, but mostly ex-addicts that I trained. Now, Sometimes I only introduced Ibogaine to someone, like if somebody called me from Brazil, a doctor, or from uh, Thailand, and, and they were on their way to doing sessions, they would call me and I would share my opinions as to the protocol that they were using for that particular individual. So I wouldn't say that I trained some people, but I introduced I began to some people help them procure the connection. <coughs> Excuse me. Of course, please take your time. Many providers had their uh, initial 
contact with Ibogaine through yourself, such as Martin Polanco, um, uh, Chris Lawrence, Claire Wilkins, and Rocky Caravelli. Uh, so yeah, clearly, you you did have uh, quite an impact on what has been called the underground movement. Um, is there anything you want to say about any of those people that you? Um, well. Well, I, actually, I, I you know Claire is one of those people that I didn't have I didn't have a direct connection with until years after she began working. But because I introduced I began to um, to Martin, um, and he then some years later began to work with with Claire, um, who received you know her initial introduction uh to i began i believe if i'm not mistaken from martin and took over um some there was some relationship there for sure Uh, didn't turn out that well afterwards but there was an initial uh introduction i think um so you know secondarily i i affected um, Claire's involvement, but certainly not primarily. Okay. Um, but when it came with, when it came to Martin and Chris and and um, and okay. Sarah, um, well, Rock, Rocky also. Um, I I helped him set up his center, the Awakening in the Dream. Um, at the time, I I had some finances, and so I was able to. Um, like help him for a couple of years um, until I, I needed to begin to make money, and then I needed to kind of trek out on my own and um, and do do my own thing. But for a while, I was able to facilitate um, the opening, uh, the helping him open his awakening in the dream center. Um, but Chris was an interesting story, um, a young, young guy uh, coming from a homeless condition, um, uh, uh, doing methadone. And um, the first moment I saw him, it was in downtown Gainesville, and he, the first thing that I saw him do is plop down in the middle of the, the busy street with people walking past him. Uh, to roll a cigarette and uh, <clears throat> and then um, it turned out when we did a test that his liver was about 80% compromised and so ha- uh, previous to that um, during the last couple of years before that I was introduced to a, an herbal protocol that literally turned the, the health of the liver around and so he went on about a two and a half month with maybe even longer protocol where he was doing um, an extensive array of supplements to heal his liver before he was eligible to do Ibogaine. During that time, his father uh, flew up from Costa Rica where he was living and they had this healing process that took place for a few months where I would sit by them maybe every week or 10 days for 15 minutes or an hour and listen to them banter and yell and scream and 
laugh and cry. There was like generational healing going on. And it was interesting to me because in Chinese medicine, the liver is all about um, anger. And there was just so much healing that was happening between them. So not only was the liver physically healing, but emotionally there was this, this holistic thing happening for Chris. And um, for some reason, I, I didn't want to do the session with him uh, as I usually did in Florida. So we flew down to Costa Rica and we went and we did the session in, um, in his house, uh, dad's house. And Chris was one of the people that really wanted to be trained. Um, but first, of course, he, he waited a while, he waited a year. And then he began to help me with sessions as other people helped me as well. So during the, the, those 15 and a half years that I was doing sessions and treatments, um, and 754 sessions and treatments happened, um, I received a lot of help. It wasn't like I was on my own. Right. Uh, it, it was in, then in 2005 that you went to New York. Uh, do you yeah. want to tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I just had this idea that I wanted to, um, I wanted to like store in the Bastille. I wanted to um, introduce Ibogaine to New York City. Um, I was still even though it was years later, incredibly resistant, incredibly reticent to admit to myself that Ibogaine was not that home remedy that um, that could be safe and available to many, many people. Um, and so I wanted to um, invite people from all over this country, um, from Santa Fe, from the Bay Area, from Chicago, <clears throat> to come and to be trained over a long three to four month summer. Um, so initially, um, a few of us uh, 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 sat, stood in front of methadone centers in Harlem and uh and and gave out flyers and brochures uh to methadone uh, people um and over a period of that few months we conducted about 40 sessions and in fact a, a friend who used to work for cnn and then went out on his own and an independent filmmaker from canada with a friend of hers an assistant of hers, the three of them came down and collaborated and created 33 hours of, of film documenting um, us doing treatments um, in apartments in Manhattan uh, during those months. And one of the people that um, that were were trained was uh, a person that lived in New York and to and carried out the work over a period of the next few years um, by the name of um, Dimitri, um, who most people in the Ibogaine world are familiar with. Um, and then there were a few others that were trained and went back to their respective cities and 
either continued the work or or bowed out. Um, but since then, there's been a couple of generations that have come and worked, and there continues to be um, quite a solid underground network of people that work with people that can't afford to go to a center in Mexico or Central America and or don't have the ability to travel overseas because of an outstanding you know, felony or some situation that uh, doesn't allow them to be able to travel overseas. Okay. So uh, am I correct to say then that Dimitri carried out about 400 treatments? Uh, That's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. After your summer uh, in New York. And then you also um, had got connected with Joshua in Thailand, is that correct? And Dr. Bruno in Brazil? Uh-huh. That's right. And right. and uh, went to Europe uh, and connected with uh, people in Amsterdam, um, did some sessions there, including Sarah Glatt. And um, and that's how I, of course, I didn't train Sarah, but introduced um, the idea of her doing sessions. Right. Had some meetings with other people in other countries. I uh, was on uh, the TV and a radio thing in Amsterdam, and that that was in 1999. Okay, so uh, as you just mentioned a little earlier, it was around 2015 when you felt you know you were going to you, you would take a break from uh, ibogaine treatments and, and so forth. But it was in in you went to Vietnam the year before in October. 2014, mm-hmm. where you you either you did you go did you know of the herbal remedy that you uh, yes, encountered? Yes, yes, I, I had heard about it eight years before. Right, um, and it was it was a guy who who went to Vietnam a couple of times because he relapsed. Um, I believe he did ibogaine too, and he relapsed, and it turned out that he feels that his relapses were a result of, of having an underlying Lyme disease, which exasperated his condition and his addiction to opioids. Um, I'm sorry to say I don't remember his name at the moment, um, but I feel like it's time to get in touch with him to see how he's doing. Um, but I, I was interested, but I had so much vested interest in I became ego interest in it at the time, which was so many years ago, about 12 years ago, when I was introduced to Hientos, which is a combination of 13 different Chinese and Vietnamese herbs, which doctors in Vietnam were using to help people uh, kind of sleep through the three and a half days of uh, withdrawal process from heroin um, that I, I really put it on a back burner, but it it intrigued me because it was inexpensive, safe, legal, didn't require any medical testing or professional care. And finally, after so many years of being so stubborn around realizing how few people we really were going to reach with Ibogaine because of its daunting experience, its illegality, its expense, um, it's, you know, the fact that it need, we need some level of professional care, EKG, and so on. 
I went back. I went back to that idea of, well, maybe I'm ready now to, to some degree, let that ego investment go with Ibogaine's being the one and only way and, uh, and go to Vietnam and see what this Hientos is all about. Um, so I went to Vietnam um, and connected with the doctors and witnessed sessions and um, brought it back to the West after spending a few days as, at a psychiatric conference with a couple of doctors that flew from Vietnam with me to Canada. Um, it was the Pacific Rim Psychiatric Conference where there was a, an orga- where there was a, a person that was doing research on Hientos um, giving a talk and basically he presented his 45 minute um, talk directly to Dr. Song, who was the creator of of Fientos. Um, well, I'm sorry, he wasn't the creator of Fientos, but he was the second generation creator of Fientos, where he helped standardize and encapsulate the the tea, which a previous person 20, 30 years ago um, created. When you got back to uh, the States, you worked with a Chinese uh, medicine teacher to do, to, right. uh, to, to tweak, create, to tweak. Yeah, so the, you want me to talk yeah, about just that? A okay. little bit, please. Thank you. Okay. Um, well, when I came back with Hientos, I realized very quickly that given the expense of each box, given that Vietnam is a communist government, uh, given that I could not get even the doctors to sign up to ask the government to fill out a simple form so that we could move on with procuring boxes so that we, we can share Hientos with Canada, with the United States, with the rest of the world, I realized that it was time to to see if it was if if it was if I was able to create a remedy my uh, myself. So I connected with a local herbologist and acupuncturist who teaches Chinese traditional medicine for 35 years, and over a period of a year and a half, year actually it was a year and two months, um, we established a combination of 18 different Chinese and Western herbs. And when I received the call from a heroin runner located in New Orleans, who told me that, that his habit went down from $250 a day worth of heroin to $30 in nine days, because he was utilizing this powder, which we didn't even have a name for yet, I was intrigued enough to drive over to New Orleans and rent a, a, a small apartment in the Ninth Ward. I think it was the Ninth or the Seventh Ward where Katrina hit. Um, and I ended up sharing the powder with 19 addicts and just hanging out with them and their families and actually with my own eyes witnessing 
how profoundly effective this powder was in decreasing the tolerance to opioids. So just, just to stop you there, is, is, this is not the same powder that you had in Vietnam, or it's based on it? No, it, it was based on it, but it was approximately 35 to 42% Hientos-related in, in terms of composition. But because it had other herbs in it, and after a while of tweaking and realizing that we could not get the exact composition of Hientos, uh, because there were probably a few Vietnam herbs that we just could not duplicate. Um, we began to <clears throat> explore a combination of Chinese and Western herbs. And when we added a couple of the Western herbs, we began to see that it was working. And nice. after after witnessing the sessions in uh, um in New Orleans, where, I mean, people literally felt that this was a game changer and they had tried other herbal concoctions um, and they felt that those other concoctions were like an aspirin compared to um, this powder. Um, I began to kind of wrap it up and and begin to began to look for a uh, a, a FDA approved pharmaceutical lab, an herbal company that would um, package it, that would uh, bottle it, seal it, label it. And we called it uh, Taperade, T A P E R A I D. Um, began to share it, approximately about 230 people doing short acting opioids tried it. It worked very well for some people. It didn't work as well for others, which herbs are generally, it's the case when it comes to herbal concoctions. Um, and very shortly after, um, I received a four and a half page single spaced typewritten letter from the FDA warning me to shut down. And basically what they were documenting in the four and a half pages was testimonials that I was receiving from people that were on my Facebook page or a website that was, um, you know, I, I didn't really know how to, <clears throat> how to um, regulate what I was sharing. And because uh, addiction is defined as a medical um, issue, um, my new drug, in quotes, would have to go through the the, the double-blind studies and the multi-million dollar investment, which, of course, I didn't have the ability to do. <clears throat> so I immediately shut down um, and I closed my Facebook page and my website. And, and I've periodically been, you know, waiting and watching for the possibility of a group overseas you know, that has the expertise to um, circumvent, you know, our FDA and to run with this on their own. And uh, people have, have, groups have had some interest, but it's a, it's a really interesting and daunting um, challenge to okay, find so people interested, mm. to, to, to be able to target our audience in terms of people that are interested in detoxing or tapering because 
course, people tend to isolate themselves when they're in that situation. So people have tried, but have basically let it go. So I've just put it aside. Okay, but I'm interested actually to ask uh, in your uh, what is your sense that this is your tapered uh, formulation? Is it your sense that it was as effective or less effective or more effective than um, the Vietnamese? Um Oh, it was different. Um, what what we found was that the Vietnam the the, the Hientos was effective, but not for tapering. It was effective in conjunction with benzodiazepines, and that's that's a key situation because at at the time when I went there, I thought that they were just using Hientos, but what they were actually doing is combining about 15 milligrams of benzodiazepines, Valium, Xanax, with the Hientos. And given that nobody in Vietnam was ever exposed to benzodiazepines, people had a very low tolerance to benzos. And so with the help of the Hientos, and people to this day are still helping people with Hientos, like post Ibogaine, for example, or pre-Ibogaine, um, in terms of just the overall nourishing value of it. Um, but I find I find that the, that I found that the Taperade helped people taper easier than if people tried to taper by using the Hientos. Okay, that's uh, interesting. Yeah, no, I, I think a lot of people will find that interesting and maybe they'll do their own research. Okay, so I guess you were put off by the uh, correspondence from the FDA and, and somewhat unsure of where to go next. But in the meantime, you did have uh, an interesting experience, did you not, when you went to New Orleans that left you wondering about the significance of this uh, new uh, product that you had co-created. You want yes. to tell us about yeah. that? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, initially, um, I met with um, a person who had um, tried out for a professional uh, football team, and he came out of his car with his wife on crutches. His, that is, he was on crutches. And he said, yeah, whenever I try to, to wean down, um, the pain hits me at the most vulnerable part of my body, which is my knees. And that's why I'm on crutches, because I'm trying to decrease the amount of heroin I'm doing. And so I shared this powder with him. And in a couple of days, he texted me and he told me that he's not on crutches and he's able to decrease the amount that he's doing so significantly without pain. Um, so that kind of raised my eyebrow, and and there was a time during my six weeks when I was with three people, two guys and, and a woman. They were sitting on a couch, and they decided to share a little heroin amongst each other. And when they did, they all looked at each other, and they realized that they couldn't really get off the couch, and they were really high. Um, and they were so surprised how, as to how high they were, and they were all taking the powder, and they attributed it all to how much lower <clears throat> their tolerance was. 
so I, I began to realize that maybe this powder is actually more controversial than Ibogaine because we can reach a million people with it because it's legal and inexpensive and, and doesn't require any professional care. Um, given that we've reached approximately 18,000 or so people with Ibogaine in 25 years because of all the reasons that, that that's the case. Right. Yes, I think you raise an interesting point, which is also tr- uh, true with Ibogaine, is that any treatment uh, which reduces opioid dependence is going to lead to the possibility of an overdose. If someone is not mm-hmm. careful uh, when mm-hmm. they, uh, you know, shoot up again, right? So that is a problem, right. isn't it? We ha- I haven't come across the problem. People realize how little they need if they if they choose to relapse. So, so then it's interesting, but the powder was actually giving people responsibility and they had control instead of a, uh, a Suboxone uh, doctor or a methadone clinic looking over their shoulder. They had control and if they wanted to taper and not get high and as a result um, elongate the times which they needed to do their opiate of choice, which equated to doing less and less as the days go by, they can do that if they actually wanted to get high by doing the same amount because now the tolerance was much uh, higher so that they could get high for the first time, sometimes literally in years, they can do that too. But for me, it's always been choice. People have the right to to, to choose which way they want to go. And so I felt it to be a harm reduction tool. Of course, yes. And, but I think it's, it's quite... Uh... One has to wonder, you know, in the cases where there have been um, people, you know, undergoing treatment and they have surreptitiously used an opioid leading to um, a, a, an overdose because of the... Oh, you uh, mean Ibogaine treatment, Yeah, for, for example. example any, oh, any, yeah. You, yeah. you know, you, one has to wonder, what is the issue here? Is it that, like that there was some uh, it, it's, uh, intolerance to pain of any description that they immediately reach out for? for an opioid in the middle of a treatment? Uh, Well, the feeling I get is that um, when people realize that they're clean, there's this rush of recognition that they need to be responsible for their lives, that they're no longer being able to hide behind their addiction so that they don't have to be accountable for their lives, for their feelings. When a person gets clean under the influence of Ibogaine, it's such a quantum step to accountability. And people just, some people just don't want to deal with it. They just don't want to deal with it. And so they, you know, But isn't there some lack of education there in the sense that, uh, you know, if one understands that your receptors are being reset, then taking the same quantity uh, where you is going to lead to an overdose? Yeah. So there's. Yeah, but they've heard. But they've heard it. They've heard it. 
they've heard it a dozen times. The Every Ivory Game provider lets people know that the first and foremost thing that you must not do is combine Ivory Game with an opioid. That's the most lethal and most dangerous thing that you can do. And yet, not very often, thank God, but occasionally a person will do it. Right, which is why I suppose, you know, um, individuals uh, supervising treatments on their own is a highly risky business. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. Yeah. Um, anyway, concer- something to be concerned about. Of course, I, Howard Lotzer did point out in his time that, um, you know, the uh, incidence of uh, deaths due to methadone were greater than those uh-huh. due to the overall uh, treatment that people were undergoing with Ibogaine. Am I correct to say that? I've heard that to be the case. Yeah. So I suppose it's a one ways up the uh, the, the the you know the one ways up the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, just to, we're coming now to the very near the end of our our conversation today, and there was something I wanted to mention that we didn't actually discuss, which was between two thousand and six and two thousand and fourteen, where uh, you were mostly on the phone. Apparently, you had stopped actually personally supervising treatments. Is that correct? That's right. After you came back from Vietnam, which was in October 2014, in January 2015, you decided to um, turn your focus towards uh, the the herbal compound that you co-created back in the States. Um, So uh, you you still, in the meantime, you still kept your website, which is uh, ibeginagain. Ibeginagain.org. So do you want to just spell that out? I begin again dot O-R-G, I-B-E-G-I-N-A-G-A-I-N dot O-R-G. Okay, so if people want to find out more about the work that you've been doing or anything else related to yourself, they can find, that, find it out there. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay, well, uh, we... You you mentioned to me uh, offline that uh, you were concerned that people should understand no more about the uh, issues around safety uh, and the protocol, which is absolutely vital. So perhaps we will do a follow up podcast uh, in the next while uh, on that on those particular subjects, if that suits you. Oh, I'd love to. Great. Yeah. But- yeah. Okay, well, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Richie, because um, it's given a chance for others to, to understand and put together your story, which is quite fascinating and uh, remarkable, really, not just for the, uh, the benefits it's brought to other people, but also the psychospiritual synchronicities that uh, uh, came out along the way. Uh, you know, it, it, it reminds one that there is something greater than ourselves and why we are are uh, trying to do what we are doing in the best way we can so I no, thanks th- yeah well i want to thank you uh, for the for the the work you've done and just to say on behalf of the community and all that you have helped your work will not be forgotten well thank you very much for inviting me in um and i, I really appreciated this time with you well thank you very much and uh, i look forward to speaking to you again soon okay bye bye now